Good morning. Our reading today is from the book of Micah, chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. Probably don't need to remind too many of you in this room, but... I never want us to forget that we are doing a series this fall called Committed, and we're looking at this special relationship between God, the God of the universe, and this particular people, and and how God chose them in order to bless everyone. And so God has this purpose. God, God creates, and God's desire is there to be life and to be flourishing, and when that gets broken, God chooses this family to bless. God commits himself to this people. And they commit themselves to God. And so we've hit really some of the highlights of the Old Testament so far this fall. You know, we've gotten Abraham and we've gotten Joseph and Moses and, and crossing the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments. And, and we've gotten Joshua, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. We got David and Bathsheba. We got Solomon as his wisdom. Last week we had Elisha, the great prophet, the, the man of God, which is a nice transition for us to Micah, who himself is a prophet. But when we come to the prophets and, and, and Micah, what they're doing is they're addressing a situation of what happens when this commitment breaks down between God and his people. What, what, what does that do to God's commitment to them? How does God address their lack of commitment, the fact that they might become uncommitted? And I love what uh, the now late great Eugene Peterson. So Eugene Peterson, um, this wonderful uh, Presbyterian pastor, pastor to pastors, who is most famous for his message paraphrase of the Bible. He passed away in the last month or so. And the message, um, no matter what, is worth, worth it just for the price of reading his introductions to every book of the Bible. There are these wonderful, beautiful summaries of, um, you know, the theological message that's at the heart of each book, and I I love it so much. And and Peterson himself was a a Hebrew scholar. That was his training, and so I think the message is the best in the Old Testament, actually. But he says this so that in order we can kind of understand what is Micah doing, what is Micah about, what are the prophets about, he writes this, and it, it is such so rich that I just have to share it with you. Peterson writes, prophets use words to remake the world. The world, heaven and earth, men and women, animals and birds, was made in the first place by God's word. 
prophets arriving on the scene and finding that world in ruins, finding a world of moral rubble and spiritual disorder, take up the work of words again to rebuild what human disobedience and mistrust demolished. These prophets learn their speech from God. Their words are God-grounded, God-energized, God-passionate. As their words enter the language of our communities, men and women find themselves in the presence of God who enters the mess of human sin to rebuke and renew. Left to ourselves, we turn God into an object, something we can deal with, some thing we can use to our benefit, whether that is a thing or a, or a feeling or an idea or an image. Prophets scorn all such stuff. They train us to respond to God's presence and voice. Micah, like virtually all his fellow prophets, those charged with keeping people alive to God and alert and listening to the voice of God, was a master of metaphor. This means that he used words not simply to define or identify what can be seen, touched, smelled, heard, or tasted, but to plunge us into a world of presence. To experience presence is to enter that far larger world of reality that our sensory experiences can point us to but cannot describe the realities of love and compassion, justice and faithfulness, sin and evil, and God. Mostly God. So it's to this master of the words of God's that we now turn and enter into his own metaphor that he uses in his passage by, by placing that metaphor in our own time. And so imagine, if you will, that it is the trial of the century. The courtroom gallery, packed with reporters and observers, the, the, the high-profile defense team with their power suits and, and $300 haircuts surrounding their celebrity client who is scribbling nonchalantly on a yellow legal pad. The prosecution team taking one last look at their notes as they nervously prepare to present their case. All rise, says the bailiff as the judge enters the courtroom with an air of authority and of certainty, as she prepares to preside over the case that will define her career, all their careers, really, a case that's become a sensation, a, a, a media circus that's captivated the attention of an entire nation. Such a scenario is familiar to us and piques our interest and imaginations because Americans, we Americans love nothing more than a good legal drama. What else can explain the fact that Law and Order was on television for 20 seasons? Not counting any, you know, special victim units or anything like that. We had Judge Wapner, Judge Judy, Judge Alex, and Judge Joe Brown, and, and that's not even an exhaustive list. And when I was in eighth grade, really one of the defining moments, I would say, of the 1990s, probably one of the defining cultural moments of, of uh, America in the last you know, quarter century was when I was in eighth grade and I was at Anthony Middle School, and each and every classroom had a television turned on, tuned on to watch the verdict from the O.J. Simpson murder trial, which was this really the first reality television event, I think, in our country. And it gave us this surreal and colorful, colorful cast of characters. Mark Furman, Judge Lance Ito, Cato Kalin, and Johnny Cochran with his unforgettable, brilliant line, wonderful piece of lawyering. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. 
a good courtroom drama, it puts not just the defendant on trial, but it speaks to something bigger. It's really our whole society. And so with OJ, we had this amazing American confluence of, of wealth and sports and celebrity and race and the police and truth and lies and, and, and the relationship between men and women. All of that was on trial. All of that was up for public scrutiny. And so it wasn't just OJ that was being tried. In some sense, we all were. And the verdict, in all senses, was not pretty. And so what we have in our passage this morning is the prophet Micah's vision of a great legal drama. And so here he gives this prophetic oracle, and he is announcing the trial of the century, but not of, you know, the 20th or the 21st, but the trial of the 8th century before Christ. And the parties in this trial are are God himself and his people. God is taking them to court. The judge of the universe is stepping down from the bench and assuming the role of plaintiff against his own people. And so Micah's prophecy comes at, at a great turning point in the national life of the people of Israel. And so gone were the happy days, prosperity, which had largely been purchased on the backs and the poor, of the poor and at their expense. And so during Micah's life, this, this, this horrible trauma had happened. The, the northern kingdom, kingdom, so you have King Solomon, this powerful united kingdom. He dies, his son takes over, it splits into uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And then the Assyrians, this great world power comes in and they smash the northern kingdom. They destroy it and take people into exile. And the same fate is, is threatening um, is threatening Judah. You can imagine that if you know, some great power invaded Canada and then you'd think, we're next. We're just to the south. And so there was this fear, this terror of what is this great power going to do to us? And so God's people turned any which way, any direction uh, to get help. They abandoned their special covenantal relationship with God, and so things are going from bad to worse, and that's the situation Micah is speaking into. And inevitably, in the midst of these difficult circumstances, the people of Judah, God's people, are questioning, how could God let something like this happen to us? What good is it to be chosen if even this can happen to us? And so there's this sense that they wanted to put God in the dock. They wanted to put God on trial for everything that was happening to them. And so in light of these accusations from the people, Micah announces in these classic words, the King James Version is so good in verse 2. It says, the Lord hath a controversy with his people. He will contend with Israel. What this means is God is going to take Israel to court. And and in in the ancient uh, Israelite court system, every case was like a civil case. There's a plaintiff, a defendant, and a judge. So there's no state, you know, bringing cases on behalf of, of, of the people in criminal situations. So we can think more it's like the people's court, where we have a judge and two plaint, a plaintiff and a defendant arguing their case. And so the charge that the Lord is making is that Israel has been an unfaithful covenant partner. Here we made these promises, we made these commitments, and you have broken them. And thereby, you're responsible for the calamities that have befallen you. Israel, you've been uncommitted. I charge you with that. And so God calls Israel to take the stand and testify. And so the Lord arises like like a, a prosecutor, ready to question an obviously guilty defendant. And in this courtroom, there is no pleading the fifth. Israel sits there trembling, knowing that that any testimony will only further prove their guilt, knowing that each and every question from the prosecution will reveal a new dimension of their sin and unfaithfulness to God. 
And so whatever the Lord's first question will be, Israel will stand condemned from the testimony of their own mouth. Then something surprising happens. Instead of questioning Israel about their misdeeds, God asks a question about his own character. God doesn't ask, oh, Israel, why have you wronged me so? Why have you done X, Y, and Z? No, God asks a very different question. God asks, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Answer me. And though the, the printed text, you know, we're reading the Bible, we jump right to the Lord's continuing answer to, you know, this rhetorical question. You can imagine in a courtroom drama that this question would just hang there. As everyone, it was silent. How have I wearied you? What have I done to you? Answer me. What do you say to that? If you're God's people, how do you answer that Everyone on the edge of their seats wondering, what is Israel going to say? How are they going to get out of this? And this question is a masterstroke. It's a brilliant piece of lawyering that would make Atticus Finch or, or Clarence Darrow or, or Perry Mason proud. And so hearing no answer, God responds to his own question by recounting the mighty deeds that he's done on their behalf. What have I done to you? What, what, what have I done to my people? Well, I've delivered you from slavery in Egypt, and I've given you leaders like Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and I've protected you from hostile nations like Moab, and, and, and I've led you from Shittim to Gilgal, which means across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And the key phrase comes in verse 5, where he says, Oh, my people, remember. Remember. The basis of God's case against Israel. All of Israel's other transgressions stem from the failure to remember what God has done for them. And thereby they forget why they were even in this special covenant relationship in the first place. The people of Israel have forgotten who God is, where they came from, and, and thus they've, they've veered off course. And, and they've forgotten how they are supposed to live as God's people in the world, blessed to be a blessing. They, they've just missed it. And the Hebrew word for to remember in, in verse 5, it, it means so much more than, you know, we think of remember, it's just recall past events or past information, and it's so much more than that. To remember in the Bible is, in the words of one commentator, to actualize the past into the present. And so in the Bible, to remember the past isn't simply to recall it, but to become a participant in its ongoing significance. A helpful image I've heard for Hebrew memory is, is that it's like rowing a boat. When you remember in Hebrew, you're, you're, you're only going in the right direction as you face backwards, and that informs the direction that you're supposed to go forward. So Israel's being called to row the boat. Remember what God has done if you want to go to where God wants you to be in the future. And memory is, is I mean, is what God's people are about. What are we doing each and every week? We're reading ancient texts to remember, and we're gathering together to, to remind ourselves. We, we have to remember. We can't forget just yesterday, we had Church Beautification Day, and it was great. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that we do, we're down in some closet, and, you know, we find the archives. And, and so you see these old pictures and old trophies and, you know, all this stuff. And, and I'm a purger. I, I hate hoarding. You know, this is like round four of cleaning out the church, which it can get burdensome, right? The past, uh, in some ways, in some forms that it takes, can become oppressive by its just sheer volume. But, but there's something else there, I think. 
is that it, 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 it's an opportunity to remember. Remember what God has been doing for years and years and years and years. And, and it didn't just start, um, you know, five years ago or four years ago. Uh, you know, when, when, when things started changing and showing up on the scene. No, no, no. And so the way the past can maybe be a, a burden we can be forgetting is if we go, oh, you know, we look back and see these old photo albums. And there's like the Aldrich Athletics Banquet stuff, which is amazing. And our own Deanne Voss, a, like amazing athlete in all these pictures, you know, ahead of our time. And we go, this is amazing to see God's faithfulness, these folks' faithfulness through these years. But remembering isn't just going, oh, God did that then, so we better just start that up again, you know? Um, uh, let's get the you know, basketball team going or the softball team going. Maybe that's good. But we remember, what was the point of that? What was the purpose of that? It was to introduce people to Christ through this activity that they loved and could share together. And to me, that's a timeless universal principle that we can apply. And we can do that through life group, or we can do that through game night, or we can do that through Chestertonians, or we can do that through loaves and fishes. We can do that a million different ways, but it's remembering not just what we did, but what God was doing in the midst of that. And the problem is that the past for Israel at this point, it's become nothing more than this remote memory, if that. It's devoid of any ongoing existential significance. And so they've forgotten who God was and what God had done for them. And so their faith had become this hollow shell, empty ritual instead of this ongoing living story of, of the presence and activity of God in their midst. And so Israel had, Israel had this memory problem. And it was this memory problem that had led them down the dark road of unfaithfulness. And so when we forget who God is, our religious practices, what they actually mean, then, then, then our, our, our faith becomes empty, and it becomes stale, and it becomes hollow, and it becomes stagnant, clinging to these outward forms where we don't have their inner power. And I, I love outward forms. Don't get me wrong, but inner, inner power is what it's all about. And when we lose the inner power and keep the outward form, that's when we're going through the motions. And so the question is, you know, do we remember what brought us here? Why we're singing these songs of praise? Why we gave our hearts to Christ? Do you remember who Jesus, you know, was and what Jesus cares about? Do you remember what scripture says, what it's actually about? And far too often it seems we forget and we go chasing after other gods that are more suitable to our age. And when in verse 6 and 7, so God says, well, answer me. What have I done for you? And then he gives this long list of amazing things he's done for them. And so Israel goes, okay, I cannot defend. There's no defending ourselves right now. I can't answer, but okay, here's what I can do. Atonement has to be made. We messed up. And so here's what I'm, I, I'm going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, God, you've got to have a price. Everyone has a price. And so the stakes just keep, keep getting raised. Israel is attempting to buy God's forgiveness through the sacrificial system, showing that they've already forgotten who God is. And so at first, it's a few, well, a few calves work, okay. How about thousands of rams? Is that good? Okay, how about thousands of, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? They're this, you know, extreme expression of, of how deeply Israel's memory of God has been corrupted, thinking that God, just like everyone else, has a price and can be dealt with. All you got to do is name it. And so when it becomes clear, okay, this is not going to work, then in this last act of desperation, Israel says, well, how about my firstborn? How about child sacrifice? So practice not unknown amongst Israel's pagan neighbors, but one with scripture absolutely abhors. 
And so here we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so they've discovered, Israel has discovered that, that God doesn't have a price, that God can't be bought off like any other government or politician or businessman or judge or priest or petty official. Israel has forgotten how to make things right with God, the God who can't be bought or paid off. They've forgotten that grace that can be purchased, no matter what the cost, is nothing more than cheap grace. And so if atonement is to be made, and it must, the question is, what does God then require? What does God really want? God doesn't want our stuff. God has no need for that. What God really wants are, are, is our hearts. And what does it look like for God to have our hearts? And then Micah gives this you know, magisterial answer in Micah 6, 8, to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And what this means is that a life of faith, it's all-encompassing. Not, there's no piece of, of who we are or what we do that, that our relationship with God doesn't touch. And so to do justice, that's, that's the first thing that Micah says. To do justice means living in a way that we honor and protect and advocate for the, the poor, the powerless, the defenseless, the friendless. And in the Old Testament, when we see this term for justice, mishpat, that's the Hebrew word, it's always associated with four groups of people doing justice. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. That comes first. God cares so deeply about that. And so doing justice is about ethical conduct towards people like that and equitable treatment. And to love kindness. I mean, this is one of those untranslatable phrases in Scripture. What it means is that we're supposed to desire with our innermost being to be God's loyal covenant partners, to be committed, to live in ways that reflect the reality that, that he is our God and, and we are his people. Sometimes we can understand the meaning of a term by thinking about, well, what's its opposite? Because that'll get at the heart of what this means. And so the opposite of loving kindness is being lukewarm. Meh, in kindness, you know? And being lukewarm... You know, room temperature faith, casual Christianity, it's, it's, it's anathema to God. God wants us to love being in relationship with him and living that out. It, it, it's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing, it's a whole life thing. And lastly, to walk humbly with our God. And walking is a metaphor for an entire way of life, and, and this word humbly could also be translated as attentively. Our way of life lived before God should be marked by our attentiveness to who God is because of what God has done for us. And, and so attentiveness is remembering God's heart for justice and, and the loving covenantal bond we share with him. And so without this attentiveness, we'll forget the substance of our faith and, and settle instead for outward, empty, religious performances that instead of helping us remember are actually and ironically kind of ritualized forms of forgetfulness where we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we forget why we did them in the first place. And so walking, is just, it's such a wonderful metaphor for the life of faith, because when we're walking with God, we're doing a couple different things. First, when we're walking with God, we're talking with God. So walking humbly, walking attentively with God speaks to the life of prayer. Some of our best talks come when we go on walks. I know I've experienced that. 
You know, before we had kids, Amy and I would go on these long walks, and you just have these wonderful conversations. There's something about walking that just enables you to focus and to think and to be in relationship in a way that you can't when you're just sitting around at home. And so a walk with the Lord is to talk with the Lord. And sometimes if you have a hard time praying, going for a walk can be really helpful for your soul and spirit to just walk around and talk to God. So walking with God means talking with God. And second, when we're walking with God, we're actually going somewhere. And so our life with him, it has direction. It has purpose. We're becoming more loving, more gracious, more generous, more compassionate, more wise, more dedicated. That's walking humbly. And one last thing, you know, to just be exceedingly clear on is, is sometimes... Micah 6.8 can sort of get ripped out of its context and just say, well, it's kind of saying that religious practice don't matter. Like, just try a little harder to do a little better. And, you know, we need deeds, not creeds. And, and you know, organized religion is not that important. And, 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 you know, some of these critiques are well taken, but oftentimes they're just kind of self-serving efforts for a pious veneer on spiritual self-indulgence or religious apathy or theological indifference or just a general laziness when it comes to the thing of God, things of God. Scripture is not down with that. Micah is not the patron saint of the, you know, spiritual but not religious crowd. Micah is speaking about a, a whole life commitment to the God of Scripture. This God who sues Israel in our passage, who asks the mountains, says, mountains, hills, testify. Judge the, judge the case. Is the same God who was judged in our place on a hill called Calvary. This is the same God who cannot be bought off by any offering, especially not child sacrifice, yet who offered himself up as a sacrifice in the person of his son for us and our salvation. This is the same God who shows us in Jesus Christ what it means to be truly human and truly good, to do justice by, by living and ministering amongst the losers, to love kindness in his single-hearted devotion to the Father, and to walk humbly from Galilee to Jerusalem on the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And when we turned our backs on him, he turned toward us and embraced us. What a wonderful, beautiful, marvelous Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.